Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is drummer, author, historian, and educator Daniel Glass. First of all, let's look at the major streaming services and where they all stand today at more or less the beginning of 2020. And we'll start first with Spotify, who of course is the big dog on the block. They have 124 million paying subscribers. And that's actually up by 29% over the last year. But the growth is mostly due to family plan promotions and bundles with like Google and Xbox. Now, despite those numbers, Spotify still lost about $350 million last year. So, of course, this is disconcerting to Wall Street investors, disconcerting to everybody within Spotify. But Spotify is trying to rectify it. And in doing that, they're going after podcasts. Podcasts are a potential cash cow for Spotify. The reason why is they're low cost. They don't have to pay anything for the podcast. All they do is host them. Where music, they have to pay a good deal of the revenue that comes in in licensing fees. And the margin is really, really thin. So the whole idea here is let's get podcasts online and let's go after international podcasts as well now that we have a lot tied up in American podcasts and see what happens. The other thing that you can expect to see are more tools for artists. And this is in regards to advertising. It's in regards to marketing, but you're going to pay for it. So now they're making money not only from the users of Spotify, but from artists as well. So this is going to be a big push in the next year, as well as investments in podcast platforms like The Ringer, which is mostly sports. So now what they'll try to do is bring more real-time media on board as well. And again, here there's less licensing outlay. So that's the whole big thing that they're actually trying to do in order to make money, get out of the hole. Moving on to Amazon Music, that's grown a lot. There's about 50 million subscribers, but most think that there's about 40 million that are paying and the other 10 are in the trial platform. Now, if there's only 40 million paying, that means that that's only about 37% of Prime membership. Amazon Prime is a big deal, and there's 150 million worldwide members, but not everybody takes advantage of Amazon Music, which is part of the Prime program. Still, Amazon Music is growing, and most of that is tied to smart speakers. And, of course, Amazon leads the world in smart speakers, and people buy smart speakers primarily for music. Not for much else. Amazon also rolled out its more expensive HD tier last year. But the problem here is it doesn't do you much good unless you're actually selling hardware to match. So right now what we're getting with Echo and other products like that is the fact that it's not really high fidelity and yet we're not getting any product that leans towards that from Amazon. Coming down to Apple Music, 60 million subscribers, actually ahead of Spotify in U.S. subscribers. They're way, way ahead on podcasts, and of course, they're in that from the beginning. And also, they have exclusive concerts and tour docs, and it looks like they're going to bundle Apple Music with Apple TV and Apple News. So that differentiates the product from everybody else. So I think we can see a long, steady growth there. YouTube Music is kind of the new guy on the block, even though they've been around forever. But in terms of actually making money from subscribers, that's kind of new. 20 million paid subscribers, which sounds pretty good, except for the fact that YouTube has 2 billion monthly users. So they're only getting 1% of those people to pay for the product. And I guess the question is, what's the value of paying for it over the free version? And YouTube has not been very good at communicating what those differences are. So I think we can see continued growth, but it's going to be slow until they can figure out this marketing problem. And then finally bringing up the rear is Pandora. Pandora subscribers have fallen by 9% over the last year, and yet there's still 64.5 million, of which 6.2 million pay for it. So Pandora has more subscribers actually than Amazon Music or Apple Music for that matter. I think what we can expect in the future here is the fact that Pandora is owned by SiriusXM. 
And we're already starting to see that Pandora and Sirius XM are kind of merging products. So you're going to see more of Pandora on Sirius, and you're going to see much more of Sirius in Pandora. So I think ultimately we'll see Pandora fading out, and this will be primarily Sirius. But if you're a subscriber, like I am, mostly because of the car, you know you really love it and can't do without it. As a matter of fact, I had a car that could not get Sirius for a while. It made me crazy. So now I'm happy with the newer car that I can get it back to normal. So that's an overview of the major streaming services, at least in the United States, and we can see what's going on and kind of where they're going, at least in the short term. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosenskycourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. So I was reading Music Think Tank over the last week. If you don't check that out, you should. There's some really cool articles on there. And there was one by April Pareto about the six F's of payment. Actually, she had seven F's. I think six are more appropriate. But the six F's of whether you should take a gig or not. So the whole idea here is if there's three F's involved, you should take the gig. If there's two F's, maybe there's still some value. So it's worth thinking about if there's only one F, pass. So what are the F's? So the first one is financial remuneration, which you would expect. Are you getting paid a reasonable amount? How are you getting paid? Getting paid in cash or PayPal or electronic bank transfer? These are all important. The second one is fun. Anybody who's ever played a gig know that some gigs are much more fun than others. Some you just hate. So this is a big factor as far as I'm concerned in taking a gig. Another one is free food and drink. Do you get it? That may not be a big item on your agenda, but everything else being equal, sometimes this is the deal breaker here, or sometimes this is the thing that puts it over the top with enough Fs to take the gig. The next one is a friend. Is there a friend that you're doing a gig for or with? Because many times this makes a difference. If a friend comes to you and says, can you do this? Well, you're doing a favor because it's a friend. So, of course, that takes precedence over many other things. Next one is a first-time situation. Are you trying to get a gig at a club, and now you're offered it, but at a reduced rate or something less than you normally do? Well, for a first-time situation, if you think it might help your career, then it might be worth considering. And finally, is it for a good cause? Is this for a charity that you believe in? We all get hit up to do things for free, and especially for charity, Sometimes it's worth it, sometimes it isn't. And then you might even consider a miscellaneous category, and that's, is the gig easy to get to? Will you work with somebody that you hold in high regard? So all those things can really make or break your decision on whether to take a gig. And of course, the idea here is there's six Fs. If your offer contains three of them, then that's an automatic yes, take it. If there's two, well, you have to consider it, might still have some value, And if it's just one, then pass. My guest today is Daniel Glass, who's worked as a drummer for a wide variety of artists that range from Brian Setzer to Bette Midler to the Budapest Jazz Orchestra to Kiss frontman Gene Simmons. Daniel has been voted one of the top five R&B drummers in the world by readers of Modern Drummer and Drum Magazine for two consecutive years. And since 2011, he's been in the house band every Monday night in New York's legendary Birdland Jazz Club. He's published five books, is a regular contributor to Modern Drummer, Drum and Classic Drummer magazines, and is widely recognized as an authority on classic American drumming and the evolution of American popular music. During the interview, we spoke about studying with the drum legend, the evolution of the drum set, how drum history and social history are tied together, playing in the house band at the legendary Birdland Jazz Club in New York City, and much more. I spoke with Daniel via Skype from his home in Manhattan. 
I want to go back to the very beginning with you. You're one of the few musicians that I know that has come from Hawaii. What was that like growing up in Hawaii, and what kind of gigs did you do? How did you get into the music business there and then go from there to the mainland? Well, um, in all fairness, I growing up in Hawaii, I really wasn't, uh, I didn't have any plans to be a professional musician. I started playing very young, and I studied classically. Um, I was in, you know, did all the typical stuff in high school, and, and I played in in rock bands mostly but i i never i just was doing it for fun my dad was a psychologist until he retired a couple of years ago and um i always kind of thought i was going to be in the family business and i went to uh so i left hawaii at 18 and went to brandeis university where i got a degree in psychology interestingly the summer after i graduated college i was i, I, I planned to stay in boston for that summer and i ended up getting to know a drummer named Bob Gulati, who actually just passed away this past weekend. Uh, very, very sad. Um, very suddenly, nobody was expecting it. And uh, he's not all that well known outside of Boston, but in Boston, he is a, a product of, of the early 70s Berkeley School of Music scene. Alan Dawson was his mentor, uh, who of course taught Tony Williams and so many other fantastic uh, drummers over the years and really established the curriculum and the, the program and the frame of mind at Berkeley for, for drumming, which still they follow today. And um, Bob, you know, I, I, I had played in bands all through college and I was very involved in it. And I sort of when I graduated, I was feeling burnt out on the more traditional academic scene. I was tired of just being in school all the time and I wanted something that was more real world. And uh, I spent five months studying with, with this guy, Bob Gulati, over the summer. And over those five months, I completely changed course. I, I realized that this is what I needed to be doing and got very obsessed and very deep into it. And um, it was another couple of years uh, because I kind of took a gap year and I traveled for a year. And then I had no money, so I had to go back to Hawaii and earn money. But finally, in 1991, I moved to Los Angeles, and uh, it was about 24. And um, I went to the Dick Grove School of Music, which I think you you know about. Oh, yeah. It was a wonderful place. It was sort of like a Berkeley, very high-level faculty. I studied with Emil Richards and John Ferraro and Steve Houghton and uh, Joel DiBartolo, who was a bass player in the Tonight Show band for uh, the last 18 years that was going on. And just an incredible faculty it was a very small school and um i had the chance to um really just continue to dig in so it was about three years of getting my act together and then i then i just jumped out and started working you know as a professional in the la scene and it took a couple of years um but my sort of i guess you could say my where it led me was was i joined a band called royal crown review which is, this was sort of in the mid-90s, uh, 94, I joined the band. And we, um, the Royal Crown was really the band that started the whole swing resurgence movement that happened in the, in the 90s, the retro swing or neo-swing movement. Um, we were sort of the pioneers of that. Uh, and um, it was a fascinating time and a wonderful time to be in L.A. And... We we were signed to Warner Brothers by Ted Templeman, who then produced our records. For your engineering fans out there, the engineer on those two records was a guy named Lee Hirschberg. Oh boy, legendary you know guy who worked with Sinatra going all the way back to probably the '60s, right up until his 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 last albums. Uh, I mean, he would talk about working you know two track machine all the way to <laughs> the, you know giant hundred channel ssl boards and all of that so we were we were it was an incredible time because this band royal crown review was was really um it was on to something cool you know the the lead singer was a he grew up in new york with a father who was a jazz musician but he was also a skinhead punk rocker <laughs> hardcore and so he would have mixtapes that had the ramones on one side and sinatra on the other and he was really into elvis and 
when he moved out to L.A. from New York, he met our tenor player who was uh, Latino and grew up playing tenor sax in Watts and South L.A. and being mentored by guys like Big J McNeely and Joe Houston, who were black R&B sax honkers from the 1950s. I produced two records for Joe Houston. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, those guys are incredible, you know? And so I got, when I joined the band, I had been studying jazz, but I had no idea about what these guys were doing. And what, what they were doing was so amazing because it was, it combined all of these sort of mid century and early century styles of music traditional swing, early jazz, R&B, big band, you know, traditional 30s big band, some bebop, uh, early rock and roll. And all the guys in the band had had a real diverse, we had a guy from Berkeley who was trained in arranging, our baritone player, so we had somebody who could do horn arrangements. Um, and what was really interesting about it, it, it was so different because it came out of the punk rock scene. Most of these guys had met each other kind of in the post-Stray Cats, you know, late 80s uh, punk rock, rockabilly, there was ska, there was all these kind of things bubbling in the underground in LA at this time, traditional ska music. So the band, you know, and also part of what made this scene successful is that there was a lot of artifacts from the era to be had for, for reasonably cheap. Um, in other words, you could go to Goodwill and you could find a cool old vinyl. You could find a vintage suit or vintage dress or vintage shoes or vintage tie clip or vintage, uh, instruments or a vintage car because in LA the cars wouldn't rust and so a scene could arise because young people could afford this stuff and then have a look and have a feel to what they were doing and also the the music came with a built-in dance style uh and these were all you know punk rockers who basically had kind of outgrown the mosh pit and were looking for a way to still express themselves but in a way that perhaps was a little more sophisticated, a little less violent. And so the early days at the Derby, which was where Ground Zero really was at this whole thing, and, and the King King Club, I don't know if you remember the King King. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and Third and La Brea. It was just the coolest scene because everybody was was just really wide open to learning and exploring and experimenting. And, you know, there was the traditional stuff, but then there were albums like Joe Jackson's Jump and Jive, which was really influential. Uh, people learned about Louis Jordan that way, Cab Calloway. And... We sort of had enough kind of jazz trained musicians, but it wasn't a slick jazz group. It wasn't kind of a nostalgia group, which is what you sort of think of when you think of a swing band, you know, older guys playing to older audiences who remember the good old days. We didn't have any of that. We went at it with the ferocity of young, angry musicians who had something to prove. And I think a lot of the people that got into it realized that some of these other, you know, what we might call root styles like early swing or early rock and roll or rockabilly were came from very much of a similar place as as uh, as punk rock. They they were disaffected youth who were just playing the music they loved with a lot of energy and a lot of aggression, and that's kind of what we brought to it. But we had an upright bass and we had a horn section with a Barry Saxon, so our our music was really unusual and our approach to doing it was unusual and the band was really about the look and we had authentic you know our tenor player who had grown up in watts had one of his dad's original zoot suits from the 60s wow you know which in the in the latino culture in la is like a huge badge of pride because you know the the zoot suiters back in the day in the 1940s the early 40s were it was sort of like the early punks you know be, they put on their fashion statement and they paid a heavy price. You know, they were subject to uh, police brutality. And, um, you know, it, it was, you know, the famous Zoot Suit riots of the summer of 1943 when the L.A. City Council, you know, this is the, the age of L.A. Confidential, notoriously racist L.A. Uh, politicians and police force. And the, the whole deal with World War II going on was that styles were about conservation of fabric so lapels were thinner and here were these you know suits were were more form-fitting and here are these blacks starting in harlem and then latinos in la wearing these outrageous drape suits that came up 
up to your nipples and you know the coats came down to your below your knees and the big hats and the wide shoulders and it, w- it was a little bit of a a middle finger to the man uh, you know at the time and so like the punks who in the late 70s would go out and wear uh, you know the spiked hair and the pierced noses and and all of that you know you, you could get your ass beat <laughs> very easily so it it had this real kind of authentic energy and it took a while for the industry to figure out what to do with this band. And thankfully, you know, Ted, Ted Templeman's always been a guy with great vision and he unbeknownst, I mean, his career, he's known for, you know, the first five Van Halen records and the Doobie brothers and little feet and, you know, all these great records of the seventies and eighties, but people didn't know that he, he was a huge jazz fan and he'd grown up on the West coast uh, up in Santa Cruz and was really familiar with the whole West Coast jazz scene and the Lighthouse and, you know, Shorty Rogers and Shelly Mann and Andre Previn and all of these. Um, there's there's a huge scene for that. And of course, being on the West Coast, those are the records we were collecting because there was a lot of those around and getting into kind of the West Coast vibe of the 40s and 50s. And Ted was familiar with that. So he could speak our language and it was the way we went about it with Warner Brothers was to try to update the vibe and the the sound, but also to kind of maintain this this vintage uh, edge. So that's really what got me into history. We were always on the road collecting stuff, driving across the country. We'd stop in antique malls and go scouring for the coolest stuff we could find. And we, you know, we there was a lot of it at that time. You know, now that you mentioned history, let's just jump over because I know. Drum history is a big thing to you, and you're an expert in it. Was that an offshoot of the band? It was uh, to a very large degree. I mean, I, I, a lot of people sort of think that that I grew up, you know, being interested in this or playing in old style bands or something like that. I had no, no knowledge and no desire when I when I moved to LA in '91. I I wanted to be Vinnie Caliuta, like everybody else that moved to LA in 1991, you know, or Dave Weckl or whatever. But um, I saw an opportunity when I joined this band because they were already pretty hot, even though they hadn't signed to Warner Brothers yet. And there were lines around the block every week when they played at the Derby and they were working all the time. And so I said, screw it. And I jumped in. But once I got in and began to really like understand the culture a little more seriously, then I really got hooked and um, I collected a lot of vintage drums and so I was playing on the gear, which I think for those musicians and obviously engineers as well, when you when you actually work with the vintage gear itself, you begin to really have a deeper appreciation for the older music because you understand kind of what went into it and how those sounds were created, how those records were created. So the other thing that was happening around this time is that after uh, I finished school and even before I joined Royal Crown, but then during the first few years I was I was in the band, I studied with this guy, Freddie Gruber. And I just mentioned Freddie earlier. Freddie was, at the time I started with him, he was 67. He had come up in New York in the 1950s and 40s, really 40s, um, as part of the whole, cent- uh, not Central Avenue, that's LA, the, uh, you know, 52nd Street scene, the, the bop and the post-bop uh, world there. And like so many of those musicians, unfortunately, he fell prey to heroin addiction and basically had to leave New York by the end of the 40s or he was not going to live. And so he came out to California and he spent his life going back and forth between the two. But he was really based in California. And even though he never quite got it, you know, never quite got it together enough to have like a real playing career because he. He was still living that junky lifestyle, even though he cleaned up for the most part at some point. But he was doing these sort of after hours gigs in El Monte, just over the city line from L.A., where all the musicians could hang. Because, again, L.A., they didn't like jazz musicians. They didn't like rock and roll. They didn't like any of that stuff in the in the 40s and 50s. It was it was real because those kinds of music were associated with people of color. And, of course, that, you know, it was just real, real racist in L.A. Uh, in those days. So, but Freddie did establish himself as a, an unbelievable teacher. And, you know, he had, was very good friends with Buddy Rich uh, for Buddy's entire life. Buddy was a mentor of his. And he knew every great drummer 
and every great jazz musician from his time in New York and, and you know, then in L.A. So studying with him was like the perfect kind of hand-in-hand -hand dovetail with what I was learning in Royal Crown Review because I would learn about all these different artists or hear these different names and listen to these different records. And I'd go to my lessons with Freddie and Freddie knew all these people and he would <laughs> tell stories about them. You know, I mean, it was it was just incredible. And he was real old school. You know, he did not suffer fools. He his house was like a decrepit museum. You just you know, it was kind of wallpaper was sort of falling off the walls. He was a heavy chain smoker. So there was always that horrible, dank, smoky thing going on. But, you know, you'd, you'd look over and, and here's like a autographed picture from Mitch Mitchell, you know, to Freddie, huh. love you, man, you know, or whatever. I mean, it was just piles of that stuff. Pictures of him with, with Papa Joe Jones on a jazz cruise and, you know, pictures of him with Buddy when they were in their 20s playing on two snare drums together. And he told me stories about how he used to... Uh, he and Philly Joe Jones, you know, the, the famous bebop drummer played with Miles and, and everybody. They were, you know, they were pimps together in New York and they lived in a garage, above a garage in Spanish Harlem. And they would pimp out their girlfriends during the day and then sit there and get high with a practice pad between them and practice out of this, this you know, kind of legendary drum book called the Wilcoxon book. That's uh, drum etudes that came out in 1942 that still today is like, you know, if you want to have your ass kicked <laughs> on that kind of stuff, you study out of that book. I teach my students out of that book. So, you know, Freddie was just incredible. It was like a portal back into the world that I was studying. And what ended up happening was a lot of legendary drummers had either moved or retired to L.A. And I began to look them up and interview them. And uh, so guys like Earl Palmer, you know, who I became very close with, of course, Hal Blaine, but older guys as well, um, Nick Fatul lived in L.A. who had played with Benny Goodman, Sextet that Charlie Christian was in, you know, playing, yeah. you know, the early electric guitar stuff. And I interviewed uh, Panama Francis, who was one of the most important studio drummers. He played with Lucky Millinder uh, in the swing era. Then he became one of the most important studio drummers in early rock and roll in the studios in New York. And Don Lamond, who was a... Uh, legendary swing drummer who played with Woody Herman's uh, Four Brothers Band in a very, very pivotal period for Woody Herman when he was really establishing his thing. And a lot of guys like this. I also, because of the nature, the variety of music that we were doing, I wasn't just looking at jazz drummers. I got to know all the great rockabilly drummers of Sun Records. So J.M. Van Eaton, who's on Great Balls of Fire and did about 60% of all the sessions at Sun. W.S. Holland, who played with Johnny Cash. And before he played with Johnny Cash, he's, he played with Carl Perkins. He's the drummer on Blue Suede Shoes, and he's the drummer on the Folsom Prison Johnny Cash album. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, Buddy Harmon, you know, who essentially created modern country drumming. He was the first studio drummer in Nashville to actually be on on re country records in any significant way because country was a style that was anti-drums for a very very long time yeah right and uh you know he they let him be on like he's on all the patsy klein you know the famous patsy klein he's the drummer on uh pretty woman he's the drummer on all the everly brothers i mean it's you know eighteen thousand sessions it's 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 incomprehensible when we think back to the kind of stuff that these guys were doing uh, at this time. And so I, I I became friends with them. I stayed at Buddy Harmon's house in Nashville. And when he got older, I made a, a videotape of his whole life that I turned into a DVD and sent to his family members. And, you know, it was, it was just incredible. A guy named uh, uh, Johnny Kirkwood in LA, who again, wasn't very well known, but had come up in the Central Avenue scene and his first big gig was with Louis Jordan, you know, who was such a major name on that retro swing scene. Yeah. So, you know, here I was talking to him, a guy named Shep Shepard, who was the drummer on Honky Tonk, uh, Bill Doggett's Honky Tonk, which was a huge rock and roll hit. Oh, yeah. Uh, crossover hit. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people may not know these names, but this these were literally the pioneers of all of the kind of rock and pop music that we listen to today. And so, you know, uh, that profoundly affected me 
because it wasn't just an intellectual exercise. I was playing the music on the actual gear, meeting the guys that had created it. And so that's how I got into, you know, and, and then all of that sort of academic training then came back into play, um, which I had sort of walked away from. But I was missing after, you know, 10 years of just playing music and being associated with musicians, many of whom have no other intellectual pursuits, you know, and even though we had a guy from Berkeley in our band and guys could play jazz, three of the guys never even graduated from high school. So it was like, you know, it was an opportunity really for me to put together uh, my intellectual pursuits with my passion for music and drumming. And also the beginnings of my time as an entrepreneur, because I realized that there was absolutely nobody in the drum industry and very few people in the music industry that were actually talking about these topics. And what I began to piece together is, you know, having interviewed, I mean, I knew Louis Belson very well, and he would tell me about the guys from the 20s, the legendary drummers that he knew, people like Chick Webb. And what, what I began to understand was sort of the story of the drum set in a much broader arc. And I began to do clinics around that time to sort of transmit some of this information out to the world of drummers. And what I realized is that you could sort of bookend the story of the drum set in a very interesting way, which the, the story of the drum set really begins around the time of the Civil War. And a lot of people think that the drum set is a an instrument that didn't start until the 1890s in New Orleans, but that's actually very it's 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 incorrect certainly the drum set was a part of the evolution of jazz and the drum set was you know they did use it to a new end in new orleans which is essentially turning turning it from ragtime into jazz you know but the drum set as an instrument had been around much longer and i began to get more involved with academics and researchers who had been looking into this stuff and doing a lot of research on my own and it turns out that the drum set was already underway, you could say, by the end of the Civil War. They, there was a technique called double drumming where a drummer would play, you know, they had no hardware per se. There was no hi-hat, there were no tom-toms. There, there was nothing but a bass drum and a snare drum and a cymbals because that's, you know, you had a marching drum section. And so the, the, at the end of the Civil War, um, entertainment evolved, had evolved. And you had John Philip Sousa, who now began writing much more sophisticated marches as entertainment instead of just for military purposes. And you had vaudeville and you had minstrel shows and you had circuses. And the the end of the war meant there was a lot more traveling going on and people traveled throughout the country doing these forms of entertainment. And so the there was a need for figuring out how they could take a three-person percussion section and essentially turn that into a one-person drummer that would be able to handle all three whether it was for economic reasons or space reasons in a pit or just you know you're traveling every day and you don't you can't have three people you only can take one so the idea of double drumming was that they would set the snare drum on a chair the drummer would sit on another chair and then sort of that snare drum would be at a very severe angle and would face the bass drum and so you would play the bass drum and the snare drum because you remember the bass drums at this time were huge. They were yeah. over 30 inches or 40 inches, and they were marching instruments. So a drummer could sit down and easily hit the center of the bass drum uh, and the snare drum. And so they would just play both of those things with their hands. And already by the 1870s, they had what was called an overhang pedal, which was a very uh, ungainly contraption that was actually very hard to play, but it was the first attempt to create something that allowed the drummer to use their foot to manipulate, uh, to strike the bass drum. So they wouldn't have to use the, the sticks to do that. And, you know, so I've done a lot of research, very interesting research. And a lot of, I, I, well, what I ended up doing, let me go back to the century idea. I In 2011, I released a DVD called The Century Project, and the idea was we looked at that beginning period, 1865, and I traced the whole evolution of the drum set up to 1965, which essentially I call the British Invasion, you know, period. And the reason I ended in 1965 is that if you think about 
Ringo and the Beatles, if you look at that piece of gear, the drum set at that point being used in a popular music setting, again, I'm talking primarily about popular music, which in the 1860s was, you know, military brass band music, and then moving through ragtime, jazz, and, you know, bebop and swing, big bands and, and rhythm and blues and all that, and working its way up to rock and roll, which then was by 1965, the Beatles sort of became the dominant form of, of popular music. And the drum set of that period had evolved over 100 years to the blueprint that essentially we still use today, really. I mean, it's you got a, you had a hi-hat timekeeper, and then you had a ride timekeeper, which is differentiated from a crash cymbal. And you have tom-toms, you know, high to low, and you sort of play fills, and you crash your cymbal on beat one. And many of those things were not there in earlier versions of the drum set where the drummer kept time how the drummer played fills what beat the drummer crashed on for example if you would no drummer would ever crash a cymbal on beat one in the 1920s 30s and 40s uh it was not until the 1950s and earl palmer you know who i interviewed and kind of was asking all these questions of him crashing on one would have been considered rude and stepping all over the rest of the musicians. So if you listen to that earlier music, they always crash on four. So, you know, you have so they would always crash on four. Yeah. And so anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating story. And what, what I realized is that it's a very compelling story because the drum set is truly a reflection of the evolution of America and American music. And the reason that the hi-hat was used or why tom-toms, you know, why did the tom-tom come about at this particular period and where did that come from has all of it has to do with these stories of America, immigrant stories, stories of race, stories of prohibition of, you know, World War II, the Great Depression, um, of the, the rise of the teenager in later years of, of civil rights. And all of it is intertwined. And and that's why I love talking about the drum set, because it is a uniquely American instrument. And I'll just make one more point. If you think about every other instrument in American popular music, uh, sort of pre-synthesizer, so piano, bass, guitar, horns, strings, all these instruments came about already in Europe, and they were brought over here and sort of, and maybe the guitar was electrified, but if you think of what Jimi Hendrix played or what a classical guitarist from 200 years earlier played it's still the same instrument basically the drum set is something completely different and it resembles nothing from any other country and the way it was used and how it affected the music and how the music and society affected it you know it's it's just an it's an american success story you know it's about taking found objects that other immigrant groups had brought and using them for particular purposes, depending on whatever the technology was, you know. So a drummer's job in the 19 teens and 20s was one part timekeeper, rhythm keeper, which is what we do today, one part uh, classical percussionist. So most drum sets included a glockenspiel and a tambourine, and those types of uh, parts were written into a score. Uh, and then one part sound effects person, because um, if you recall, you know, there was no music in movies before the end of the 1920s. There was only radio and people had to imagine and therefore they needed sound effects. And so even in pop music situations, drummers always had what were called traps, which is sort of for contraptions. Um, and, you know, temple blocks, wood blocks, whistles, bells, metal plates, gunshots. I mean, you name it. It's that's an incredible world unto itself. And although most of that was completely eradicated in 1930, once you could put music and and visual together, it, it's a significant time. You know, there was 30 years where, where drummers played like that and used the gear for that purpose. So anyway, it's a fascinating story. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned about how you got into this and how you begin to delve deeper in, into the history of drumming and interviewing drummers from the past that were influential, it dawned on me, you know, that's what I do with my books in a way. It was only after the first one. The, the first book that I did was the Mixing Engineer's Handbook. I wasn't a great mixer myself, so I wanted to learn how to do it. And I figured if I wanted to know this information, a lot of other people did as well. 
So I went and I interviewed 25 of, you know, the best mixers in every genre you can think of. And while I was doing, while I was transcribing everything, I realized, you know, there's so much here that's so good that if I just use this as background information, it's going to go into the ether. So that started a formula for me for my books, which was usually about a third of each book that I do is filled with interviews. I pull sections of the interviews out and put them in other sections of the book as well where it's relevant, but those interviews were so fascinating in themselves. After I did a couple of books, it dawned on me that I was a historian. Yeah. Not by name, but that's what was happening because I was saving a lot of these things, saving the comments of people that should be famous that weren't or should be more famous people that were influential to the way things are being done, you know, X number of years later. And for sure, a lot of the stuff was going to go into the ether unless it was saved. So that then really made a difference in my approach to how I wrote books after that. It sounds to me that that dawned on you a lot sooner than it did on me. Well, I think that, you know, for example, if, if, if I was to write a book on blues drumming, and just put a bunch of transcribed grooves down on a page, it would be rather meaningless because, and I have written a book on blues drumming and it's, it ended up being 152 pages because the way that I like to think about it as context and the way that I describe it is the why behind the what. And I think if you're teaching someone how to play drums and this sort of transfers over to the way that I teach my students, like literally teach them technically how to play the drums, and I apologize for no the noise behind me. I don't know if you can hear it. They're yeah. doing some construction in my building. So, But if you're teaching someone, say, to play jazz, but they don't have any understanding as to why the hi-hat drops on two and four or where the ding-ding-da-ding on the ride cymbal comes from, or you know they don't know any songs, they've only learned patterns that they play or certain kinds of independence that they learned because this is what you're supposed to do when you play jazz – then all of it is totally pointless, in my opinion. And, you know, you, you can't really call yourself a jazz drummer because you have no idea what is your mission as a jazz drummer or as a rock drummer, you know, or how did rock evolve out of jazz so that if you want to play certain rock styles, how can you play them properly, you know, so that they have, because someone like Earl Palmer invented them at a time when, there was no such thing as a rock drummer and certainly not as a rock drum teacher. And so, you know, what what perspective was he coming from in order to create this music that was different than what came before it? So, you know, I, I that's I'm with you 100 percent on that. And I feel like context is incredibly important to being good at what you do. Uh, at least as a musician. Yeah, I, you know, I always felt the same way where there's a lot of do this, do it the way I show you, rather right. than this is why you should do it. Try it like this, but here's why. And here's why was always more important because then it allows you to take whatever that technique is and mold it to your own sensibilities. And you can't really do that unless you, you know the underlying reason for doing it in the first place. Yeah. Jeez, I'm sorry. Now there's sirens and ambulances yeah. going by. <laughs> it's New York, man. What can I say? Well, okay. This is a good way to segue here because you were in Los Angeles for a long time and you moved to New York. Yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of, I think a lot of people thought I was crazy for doing that because I, 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 I was 19 years in LA and I had established a, a very solid career. Uh, I mean, the band was not full-time after I did it really, really full-time from 94 till about 2001. And then we, we continued to tour and make records and whatnot, but it, it, uh, it had sort of, the scene had slowed down and we had slowed down enough that I had to figure out other stuff. So I began freelancing a lot in LA and I was freelancing a lot in, you know, with, rhythm and blues bands and 1920s bands and, and just digging into these traditional styles of playing. But I also um, felt like I was spinning my wheels perhaps just a bit. And 
strangely enough, the other thing that was happening a lot that was disconcerting for me was that I was falling asleep at the wheel driving home from gigs. And I was working all over Southern California, you know, from San Diego to the Inland Empire to, say, Santa Barbara um, and, you know, having to drive home at midnight, hour and a half drive. And I was I was falling asleep and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to continue to do this. Something bad's going to happen or, you know, something's got to give. And I just, um, I had always dreamed about living in New York, but I was very fearful that New York was going to have me for breakfast. <laughs> I moved to New York when I was 18. That would have been the case. But I, what happened, the, the catalyst is that I fell in love with the woman who is now my wife uh, in 2007. And I had actually known her for a lot of years, uh, mostly as a, as a, just as a friend. We saw each other between, say, 94 and 2007. So for about 12 years, just as, as friends every couple of years and very loosely stayed in touch. But we, I was out in New York performing and we rekindled our friendship and that turned into a romance and then we got very serious. So after a couple of years of long distance, it was sort of like somebody's got to move. And I owned a house in LA and I was working, you know, five, six nights a week and doing, writing the books and doing, you know, a lot of stuff. But I sort of said, you know, man, New York. <laughs> and New York, of course, being the center of jazz history and, you know, uh, it's in such an incredible place. So I, I took a risk and I moved out here in 2010 and uh, I have not looked back at all. I held on to my house and rented it out until 2017. And then I sold it and I actually bought an apartment here in New York. So I am now officially a New Yorker. All I have left in LA, well, I have some family there. My wife's family's from there, but I just had a storage unit and a bunch of vintage gear that I can't, that I don't have any space for out here. And so um, coming out here was a little bit scary, but I already really had, you know, 20 years of experience under my belt. I knew what I was doing. A big part of what I was up to when I came out here was grow was building the brand. And so, you know, you could kind of do that from anywhere as long as you had a computer. But what I fell into in New York about six months after I arrived really set the tone for what my life, my professional life has been here, which is that I, somebody told me, a, a friend said, hey, you're new to town, you should come down to Birdland on a Monday night. And they have like an open mic night and um, they're happy to have anybody sit in. And I thought, okay, sounds cool. And Birdland, you know, I mean, that's, that's a legendary place. And I had been there many times as a patron, but the opportunity to just come and, and hang and sit in. Um, ironically, this this gig, which I soon found out is a major institution in New York, it's been running now for 17 years. So I've been doing it for nine years, and I'm still the new guy. <laughs> but this gig uh, is a very, it's an open mic night, but it's people like Liza Minnelli and Michael Feinstein and uh, gosh, Patti LaBelle, Art Garfunkel, Kenny Loggins, Jonathan Price, Bette Midler, incredible people, and all the leads of all the Broadway shows sit in, because it, it was originally started on Mondays for that purpose, because most of the Broadway shows, their dark night was Monday, traditionally. It's a little different these days, because there's so many shows. But um, anyway, I went down, and I sat in for what I thought was going to be one song. And it just so happened that you know, because they only had a bass player and a piano. I don't know if I mentioned that. There was no drummer on this gig. Uh, it was just a house band of bass and piano. And they had sort of tried a couple drummers along the way, but nobody worked. And I sat in at the same time as this incredible female Brazilian guitar player singer. And me and the piano player and the bass player and, and her, we just locked instantly and knocked the socks off the room. And so those said, well, why don't you stay up for another tune or two? And before you know it, I sat in for the whole rest of the night. And they said, well, you know, you were great and you fit right in. So why don't you come back next week? We can't really afford to pay, but we can give you dinner and drinks. And here I am six months in New York. I'm not really working that much. So I said, I'm there. And I never left. I mean, it's now coming up nine and a half years I've been doing this gig. And I just sort of fell into being the drummer. And I think... All of my work with historical styles 
working a lot with vocalists, understanding the context of music um, really helped. And, and also the ability to play quietly, which I think we talked about at our dinner. Yeah. Um, being able to back up singers in very intimate, potentially intimate settings. And even when it gets loud, it isn't really loud in the sense of what most drummers know of as loud. It may be, you're living sort of in the world between piano and mezzo forte. That's your, <laughs> that's your dynamic range. And you don't ever really get louder than that. But I really, uh, I was tailor-made. All my training, all of my historical research and all of that, working with the vintage gear, I just was built for this gig. And so what's great is I sort of fell into, I guess, the cabaret world, you could call it, Broadway cabaret. I don't do Broadway shows, but I work with a lot of wonderful Broadway performers. And um, I fell into it at, at the highest level. And the the uh, piano player in this in this uh, it's called Jim Caruso's Cast Party. Uh, the piano player in the House Trio is a guy named Billy Stretch, who was Liza Minnelli's musical director for 25 years. He was uh, on the road with Tony Bennett for a year. I mean, the quality and level of musicianship is extraordinary, and I mean, it really lit a fire under my ass to really get it together if I was going to hang you know with these with these folks not that i it was beyond me but it just was a whole new skill set a whole new way of interacting and um it's been the best training for me because uh so much has come out of it playing three hours without a break any formal break sometimes uh, i get off the stage for a couple of songs if you know somebody has their own drummer or if they don't want a drummer Otherwise, we're on stage from basically 9.30 to 12.30 every Monday night, and it's Birdland, so there's no no fooling around, you know? it's You, you don't want to look bad, <laughs> yeah. and you certainly don't ever want to phone it in. So that is like, for me, that's my weekly routine at the gym, and we have no idea what's going to happen. There's no rehearsal, and all kinds of people come up and sit in. It could be very loose. It can, be, it can bring very sophisticated charts. And the band takes the gig incredibly seriously. It doesn't matter who you are or how well-known you are or what your level is. We, within sort of literally five to ten seconds, try to nail exactly the bag that this person is coming out of, whether it's a Sinatra thing or it's a Dusty Springfield thing or it's a Sarah Bareilles thing or it's – I mean, we, we've played rock music. We play country music. You know, a lot of people from Nashville come up, a lot of the heavy songwriters from Nashville come. So it's that's what we sort of pride ourselves on, is that every song is going to take you on a very unique journey. And understanding all that context, that's absolutely key to pulling that off. So that my I make my little, you know, jazz cocktail drum set that I have there sound like whatever it needs to sound like to fit in with the music. You know, so we played Benny and the Jets last week. How are we going to replicate that on a, with a piano trio? And we did a pretty darn good job. <laughs> you know, so it's 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 a really fun night. The host Jim Caruso is hilarious. There's a lot of witty banter between him and the piano player. They've been friends for 35 years, and they know everyone in town. And essentially, the reason why I work 200 gigs a year in New York is is because of this 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 gig I have, and I've just met. A great number of people through it and work with uh, wonderful singers like Linda Lavin, who was on the show Alice back in the sure. 70s and 80s, yeah. who's a tremendous singer and performer. She just We just did a record with her. Uh, I work a lot with a woman named Marilyn May, who's 92 years old and is she was she holds the record for the, the, the greatest number of appearances on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. She was on 76 times uh, and is a an insane singer at the age of 92 you, you don't say oh she's a pretty good for 92 you're like this is one of the greatest singers i've ever seen wow. um so you know people that maybe aren't that mainstream per se but in this world they're superstars and uh and you know i go on go on the road with them and all kinds of stuff so it's 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 really been a pleasure to fall into new york and be able to have these kind of experiences and to you know be able to succeed in a city that as you know is is difficult to, at, at best <laughs> so besides gigging and besides your books and dvds you're also doing private lessons and clinics as well right 
Yeah. And I, as I mentioned, I studied with this guy, Freddie Gruber, when I was in L.A., and he had a tremendous outside-the-box approach to teaching that I had never experienced uh, with anyone else that I'd studied with. And what he would do is he would sort of reverse engineer what we do as drummers and break it down to the most infinitesimal movements. And you would, the way you practice is you, you do, you, at least starting, you, you just do those movements. So it doesn't have anything to do with music or drumming. It's simply learning how to move your body in incredibly uh, slow but very focused ways. And then, you know, he does the same with the feet, and then you slowly put the hands and feet together over the course of study. And it's very, very sophisticated. And although probably most of your listeners have not heard of Freddie, they've certainly heard of many of his more famous students. Dave Weckl studied with him. Steve Smith studied with him for 12 years. He completely turned Steve Smith from one kind of drummer into another kind of drummer. Um, and ne the most famous student is the recently departed Neil Peart from Rush, who discovered Freddie uh, sometime in the probably around so early 2000s or mid 2000s. And he became Freddie became his guru. And if you've ever seen the Rush uh, documentary behind the lighted stage, uh, Neil brings Freddie out and they sit on a couch. And Freddie was this he was really people call him the Yoda of drumming because he spoke in backward sentences. He lived on a planet that was like a jungle, you know, crazy place, as I mentioned. But he was tapped into ancient forces and he wasn't going to hand it to you and he wasn't going to make your life easy. But if you could if you could hang in that environment with him, you walked away being tapped into like what I like to call the dark arts or the ancient technologies of the past. And we could have a whole discussion. I'm sure that would be interesting about what happened to drummers when technology took over the recording process and rock music took over, you know, in terms of their relationship with their instrument. So sorry, I'm, I'm yeah, diverting yeah. into another topic. Uh, no, you know what? <laughs> I, I think we're going to do part two on this because that's a really good place to, to start. And this is going in a great direction, but I don't want to keep you for that much longer. Last question for you then, Daniel. Sure. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Wow. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that is a heavy question, man. The best piece of business advice. I mean, you know, I remember Ted Templeman said to me, this is just the first thing that kind of comes to mind, but it's pretty good. I asked Ted one time, I said, Ted, you know, what what does it take to be a great music producer? You know, what makes a great producer as opposed to just a great musician or, you know, great engineer or whatever? What should I do? I said, and he, and he said, listen to every kind of music you can absorb yourself in music. It doesn't matter if it's popular or not, if it's your if it's your favorite kind of music or not, but learn about music. And interestingly, when I was a child, all the way up through when I graduated high school, my parents refused to get a television set. This is in the, you know, the early 70s, late 60s, actually, when we first moved to Hawaii. And they they were they didn't want, you know, television rotting their kids brains. So my sister and I, even though we were resentful of that because everyone else had TV, of course, we became music obsessed and we listened to the radio and records all day long, every day. And I really have never stopped doing that. I, I have an incredibly eclectic taste and I listen to all kinds of stuff and I thrive on that. I find that to be one of the most nourishing things I can do. And so if you turn that around into how has that helped me? Well, as a, as a musician, as an author, as a researcher, I haven't closed myself off to very much. And I think it's allowed me to go to certain places that uh, other musicians, maybe of my peer group, would not have gone or thought about them in a particular way or seen them in, in terms of the big picture, which I love to do is look at, you know, music in the big picture. And I think then I can go a lot of places, you know, so the, the gig at Berlin is kind of a microcosm of that. I think that particular skill set has helped me to be a successful business person, you know, as a result.
You can find out more about Daniel, his books, podcasts, and clinics at danielglass.com. That's Daniel Glass, G-L-A-S-S, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab. Or you can go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.